Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Friends, welcome back to the show. Today we have on for, it's your first time on, isn't it, Steve? First time Indeed. on the Indeed, yeah, it is. Steve, yeah. Steve Cuss. I feel like I said that right. Cuss. Like it's a strong, strong last name. Cuss. Yeah, you should you should say it in a declarative tone or sometimes an accusatory tone is also mm. helpful. Okay. All yeah. right. Well, your book is entitled Managing Leadership Anxiety. Now, let me tell you about the uh, little ad that I'm going to tell you about. I don't know if managing leadership anxiety would be appropriate, but the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Do you think this, this book would have anything to say about that? I think this book would single-handedly solve what has been a millennium of problems. Okay. Well, let me tell you something about Telos. They, if, if they got your book, they could go there and solve it because Telos forms communities of peacemakers to help heal seemingly intractable conflict. Intractable because, you know why? They don't have your book. That's exactly why. <laughs> That's right. Now, That's what you can do is you could join me. I've done this before. I've been on one of these pilgrimage, this transformational pilgrimage to either Israel, Palestine, or America, the American South. I haven't been to the American South, but I've been to Palestine, Israel. And what happens on these pilgrimages is you see the world with a different lens and understand what it means to be a peacemaker in these divisive times. Visit Telos Group, T-E-L-O-S, T-E-L-O-S, group.org. And you can learn more about joining some great people and doing some outstanding work, peacemaking. And what they could do, if, you know, Steve, you should just go and bring a case of books. And you could just hand one out to every person. You know, on these trips, you meet um, uh, Israeli settlers, you meet uh, Palestinians, uh, you, you meet, uh, uh, I, I met a, a Muslim sheik, and they're all talking about this conflict. And what you could do, just hand them one book out to each of those groups. And you'd single-handedly solve it. Yeah, I, I may be ruining your sponsorship here, but uh, Jeremy, um, he's a peacemaker in the Middle East. Oh, um, oh, you're thinking of, um, oh, he's been on the podcast before. Yeah, he's been on your show. This isn't related to him? No, his, um, he's in... Oh, I'm glad I brought it up. Yeah, I, and I can't believe I forgot his last name. Um, uh, what is his, everyone knows his last name. But he yeah, is in, sure. he's in Iraq. And uh, okay. uh, this is really bothering me. What is his last name? Yeah, Google will know. Yeah, Google will know. Um, but no, this is not related. To, it starts with a C. Jim Skrr. Yeah, Cowan, maybe? Sure, that sounds right. Sure. But no, he's not related. I don't think they're related, but I, the uh, Todd Detheridge, who's been on the show, uh, he organizes this. And I feel like they're friends. They know each other. Okay. But you know who people should know? Steve Cuss. That's who people <laughs> should know. <laughs> Now, I, f- I feel like I first met you uh, on the interwebs, and I was connected to you, and I was instantly, instantly interested because you had some sort of moniker about a writing of yours that refers to Steve's cuss words. Oh, yeah. Which, my website is stevecusswords.com. Which is an outstanding name. I kind of wish I had that last name just for that handle. Yeah, it comes in handy for a preacher once in a while. It does. It does. Yeah, sometimes it's your only tool left available. Like Mark <laughs> Twain himself said, swearing or cussing provides relief sometimes not even afforded to prayer. <laughs> That's Mark Twain. That sounds legit. I mean, if it's Mark yeah. Twain who said that. Yeah. Do you prefer uh, when referring to expletives as cuss words or curse words? Yeah, I prefer swear words. So where I grew up in Australia, cuss actually has no meaning. So I, I was in for a shock when I came to America. I came over here to start studying theology. And I went to the South, I was in Tennessee, and I was really shocked that cuss actually 
you know, had a meaning here. So it's been an adjustment. I assume the etymology of cuss is just a lazy way of, well, dare I say, not pronouncing the word curse. Isn't that, that has to be right. That's so funny you ask. I've actually never used it. It's your last name. I feel like you should be the expert on that. And if it makes sense to you. I feel bad. Okay. Okay. uh, I've I've spent all my time chasing the horse thieves that got our family started in Australia. I haven't had time to chase the etymology of the word. Are horse leaves? I figured they'd be like kangaroo leaves in Australia. Would there be more, (laughs) a more Australia kind of way of saying that? You know, here's what's so funny, and we're definitely off track, but uh, I've known most of my life that we got started by horse thieves, and all Aussies were very proud. Oh, th- horse, horse thieves. Horse thieves. Oh, I thought horse yeah. leaves was like some Australian thing. No, horse, people still, oh, okay. Right, so, so my ancestors got sent to Australia for prison sentence for stealing horses in England. But I just found out this last June from my aunt that he, the, the horse thief was actually a mule thief, and I've just lost all respect for him now. It's terrible. I mean, I, I could see you making making that sort of decision for a horse, but a mule? It's kind of like, set your... He deserves to go to Australia at yeah, that point. Yeah, set your standards higher. Now, I feel like I've yeah. had this conversation on the podcast with other Australians, and I thought that Australia was founded by people who were convicted of crimes, and they're like, no, I don't yes. think that's real. You, yes. once and for all, that's true. Well, so 160,000 convicts. Plus entrepreneurs, sheep farmers, you know, the whole mix. But 160,000 convicts helped start Australia along with everyone else. Okay. So the other options, you can either come from convicts or entrepreneurs or what was the other one? Oh, sheep farmers. So the, okay. the guy that basically invented merino wool through a breeding program, he's an, he's an Englishman that settled in Australia. Okay. John MacArthur. What I want to do, I want to give you names of Australians and you yeah. tell me, are they in the lineage of the convicts, of the horse people, or the sheep people? Okay. Oh, I don't know. Okay, gonna, let's try it. I, 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 feel, I have no idea. Let's, let's play. I, I just made this up. I feel like let's go with it. Okay, yeah. Hugh Jackman. Convict, convict. horse, definitely. Must okay, convict, yeah. Okay. Um, you know Jared McKenna in Perth? Yes, yes. So Jared McKenna is the preacher at the church where I became a Christian. Okay, so convict, horse trader, or sheep he must be a convict. I mean, Jared's such a wonderful yeah. outsider. Here's the thing about Jared, though. I've actually never met him. I'd love to meet him and chat with him someday. You should, but you I've should never, meet him. We should, I should reach out We to should him. make that happen. Yeah, he's been arrested, so I feel like the convict is a good, yep. good one from him. Um, he probably relaxed. It, like, reminded him of his heritage. Yeah, it's like, this is in my, it's, it's in my roots. Okay, yeah. um, uh, is Nicole Kidman from Australia? She's Aussie, yeah. What, which one yeah. do you think she is? I think she's got to be sheep farmer yeah. at this point. That's the she's right. She's kind of got some a, a root, uh, aristocracy in her, I mm-hmm. think. Yeah. Brian Houston. Miss of Oh, Brian Houston, yeah. Hard to say. I'm an entrepreneur for sure. Yeah. It, it would actually be interesting to ask all these people because I think <laughs> most, most Aussies I know are quite proud of coming from yeah. Comstock, unless I've been at sheltered. Because I'm from Perth. I'm from the West Coast. Yeah. So a lot of the people you mentioned are East Coasters. They don't really like to associate with us on the West. Really? Because, yeah, we're better at football. We're better at cricket. We're hmm. better weather. You know, they're just... They, they're not as they're, they're jealous. Where's the surfing better? Oh, West. West. Come on, Luke. Come, West. Come. Um, I I really love that game. I'm really glad we play that. I would also <laughs> like to ask a question about Joel Houston, which you would think that he would also be from the entrepreneurial train because that's his father. But I feel like in this game he could be from a different one because that he, he could. Yeah, yeah. My father was actually from sheep farmers, and my mother's from mule thieves. So you can have both in your family. Okay. So which one do you think yeah. Joel is? 
I, you know, why not horse thief? Yeah, that's that's sure. That's the right answer. Yep, that's the right answer. Okay, so uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's the highlight of my day so far. Okay, the thing I can't tell is if you're going to edit this out or if you just can't be bothered. You're just going to let the whole thing roll. I don't edit. I don't. I really don't edit. It's just, this is, yeah. people are going to get this right now because it's, it, it's real. It's authentic. Um, okay. Yeah. So you came over, you studied in Tennessee, yep. right? Did undergrad there yeah, and uh, finished undergrad and you started hospital chaplaincy just right, right away. Yeah. Which that sounds terrifying. It was terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying. Yeah. I'd be married like right at a week and, uh, <laughs> My wife was on a five-year degree program, so she had one more year of college, and mm-hmm. we needed enough money, to, you know, to live in our little single-wide trailer mm-hmm. that we had. And um, I applied to be a chaplain at the local hospital. I had no idea that it was this whole formal training. In fact, I was in the waiting room waiting for the interview, reading the brochure about the training. Mm-hmm. And so when they asked me in the interview what I knew about it, I just basically recited what I'd read in the brochure <laughs> waiting. Yeah. And uh, really against all odds and against, I think, even their better judgment, they offered me the job. I was too young. I didn't have a graduate degree. Mm -hmm. I'd never had any experience. And it was a program called Clinical Pastoral Education or CPE. Mm -hmm. So some people may be really familiar with it. And you're actually supposed to have a unit of it before you do a full-time four units. And they just jumped me in. So I did four units. And yeah, my first ever day in the job was a 28-hour overnight shift. And within, I think, an hour and a half of starting, I was in an intensive care waiting lounge with about 12 screaming people. And, and it was just nuts. One, I'll never forget, one lady was headbutting a wall. One lady was vomiting into a rubbish bin. It was just crazy. So I've read that part of your book uh, twice. Uh, I, I read it less. I would say a nice little endorsement. It was a, a solid endorsement. So I read it for that, and then yes. I reread it getting ready for this, and I, the image has never evacuated out of my brain. Just the idea of just, I, you're 22, 23, however old you were, just shoved in this, and they're like, go take care of it. And yep. you, no one told you what to do. No one, no one gave you like, hey, this is the, the thing to say. That's right. terrifying to me. That sounds... Yeah, they, they actually take great pride, and I think they take great pleasure in intentionally kicking you into situations without giving you any direction. That's part of the, the whole disorientation process they want to put you through in, in the first year of chaplaincy. Yeah, that is ridiculous. You had a, a prayer that you started to say, and I even referenced this in a sermon a couple of months ago, where at first, every time you got paged down to the ER, your prayer was, I hope this isn't my wife. Yeah. Which has to yeah. be the most natural prayer for any of us is like, I hope this isn't like my people here. Yeah. Yeah. Did that ever go yeah. away? No. No, I prayed that every day. It, mm-hmm. it was, and, and I think the whole CPE experience, they intentionally plunge a ministry student into trauma and death so that you can figure out what's going on under the surface and then you can overcome it. And that's obviously a lot of what my book's about. But yeah, no, I never stopped praying that prayer. And I don't think there's anything wrong with praying that prayer. I think that the challenge is if you're not aware you're praying it, you very quickly end up like the Pharisee. And that's what I wrote about too, right? It's like, before you know it, you're basically saying some version of Luke 18, thank you, God, that I'm not like that person. Hmm. And that's where the problem comes in. Because you can't be fully present to somebody and celebrating that you're not them at the same time. It's it's one or the other. Yeah, you tell a story about... uh uh, the the mom who was driving didn't put the kids in the seat belt and 
you talked about how it was difficult for you to, to uh, commiserate, to, to, to support, to, to be there for her because of your judgment towards her doing something that most of us parents would think is almost an unforgivable sin. Just put the, put the stinking seatbelt on and you don't have the kids flying out of the van. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, so I was raised in a family where not wearing a seatbelt is probably three steps lower than murder. Like it's just, <laughs> it's so wrong. And it, yeah, it was an incredible experience to be walking toward this poor woman and so mad at her that I had to overcome that in order to be able to sit with her. And then what really got powerful is is sitting next to her while everyone in an emergency waiting around judging her because mm-hmm. she was on the news that night. And uh, that was a fascinating experience, feeling judged just because of my proximity to her, let alone my own judgment of her of myself. It definitely... That was a key learning moment in my life. Like that was a shift in my life. How so? Because uh, I, I don't think I realized how judgmental I was until that moment. And I didn't realize how judgmentalism deeply infects my ability to be a pastor. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like celebrating. I, I can't judge somebody and be present in their pain at the same time. And I had to overcome. I mean, I'm not proud of any of this, but I, I had to overcome all the things I wanted to say to her which would have been of no help whatsoever. They would have made me feel better because I would have been self-righteous, basically. Mm-hmm. But I had to overcome all that and empty myself of all that so I could actually sit with somebody in pain and actually be of use to this poor woman. I mean, there she is in the waiting lounge. Her son and all these kids are behind the wall fighting for their life. And that's, the, that's one of the hardest jobs as a chaplain is you have to learn how to be present without getting to do something. You don't get to ask for the scalpel or the paddles. You just have to sit with somebody and wait and somehow be attuned to God's presence. And, and I think most powerfully, um, you have to learn that, that your initial reaction to say something is often to manage your own anxiety, not to actually serve the person. Tell me more about that, how y- your desire to say something is about you, not about helping them. Yeah, so mo- most leaders, like like most leaders and parents, I just put them generally in the same category, uh, we can only withstand the internal and external pressure to do something for so long. Uh, we just feel this compulsion that we must act. So if you're in a room with somebody who's hurting or in deep grief, you're feeling this external pressure to do something, maybe because they're crying, maybe they're boldly saying to you, how could this happen? Like maybe they're actually just asking you a question and you believe the lie that because they asked you a question, you should answer it, for example. That would be the external pressure. But then we all have all this internal pressure. Like I carry to this day, I'm in my mid-40s, I still carry this overwhelming need to be, to be seen as smart and intelligent. So if I'm in a situation like that, I'm feeling all this internal pressure to do something to be helpful so that somebody can say, boy, that guy was really helpful. And then I can say, oh, thank you so much. But um, boy, when, when people are in grief, like I think we've both lived long enough and we're both pastors. When you ask anybody who's gone through the grief journey, the, the least helpful people were the ones that had something to say, typically. Yep. The most helpful are just their, their capacity to be present in, along with someone's pain. That's where power comes. Yeah. Yeah, the uh, there's a 
a, a kind of a simplistic way to understand the word compassion in the Greek, which is that it's a compound word of suffering and with. And while that might not be the best uh, way to interpret the Greek, I think it is a beautiful picture of what compassion is, like you're sitting with yeah. someone. And one of the things that can often impede our ability to sit with someone is I'm dealing with my own stuff, my own anxiety, and it's, I'm making this yeah. about me. I've got to say this, even if it's not helpful to you. And I think that is this idea of... Uh, the, the leader who can who can calm his or her emotions and her anxiety so that they can be present for the other person. And y- you mentioned Erwin Freeman who talks about the well-differentiated leader. I, yeah. I think that is, that concept that you have to differentiate yourself from the actual situation. I feel like that's, that's leadership 101. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's fascinating like Jesus in Luke 24 with the road to Emmaus. Well, I, I think that's an incredible model of differentiation. So for someone who doesn't know what differentiation is, you could just read that story and get a good taste. Because here we have Cleopas and his companion. Let's call the companion Mrs. Cleopas. We don't know mm-hmm. who it is. And they're walking along and they're super anxious. Jesus rolls up and he basically says to them, you know, hey, what are you guys talking about? And then Cleopas basically says, look, are you, are you like the only guy that doesn't know what's been going on around here? So of course... Their anxiety is purely about him. And instead of relieving them of their anxiety, he just walks alongside them for quite a while, yep. probably probably several hours, until he reveals himself at the Eucharist. It's really a, a beautiful <laughs> moment. I think most leaders, when somebody is anxious, I think if we're on that walk alongside, we immediately try to shortchange what God's doing in them by relieving this person's anxiety. Like, I think if we were Jesus, we'd be saying, hey, guys, it's me, it's me. Yep. But Jesus somehow is able to actually walk alongside a highly anxious person and still be fully differentiated. It's, it's pretty stunning. It's a powerful tool, and it takes, you know, lots of reps to get the hang of, for sure. And being God in the flesh, that would be another option. You don't need reps he does, as much. He, he does have an advantage of us. That whole fully human and fully divine thing, he, he has that on us for sure. Yeah. Some might not even be fully human at this point. So, yeah, it's difficult for them to, to get either of those options fully lived into. Uh, yeah. You say that anxiety can be an early detection kind of uh, sign, that it could show you that something else is going on. How, how is that? Yeah. So, one of the things I'm interested in helping people with is turning anxiety from a liability into an asset, kind of a jujitsu move, if you will. Mm-hmm. So I think I will. If you think, oh, thank you yeah, so much. Yeah, I will. That's very. It's gracious that you will. Christ-like. Uh, in, well, yes, <laughs> and yet not the divine side. But now we digress. <laughs> uh, jujitsu move. Yeah, I think. Um, I think anxiety is the evidence that we're depending on something other than our identity in Christ for our well-being. And so if you can become hyper-aware of anxiety, you can actually overcome it quicker. I think the fundamental problem is most people carry a level of chronic anxiety that we're actually not even aware that we're carrying. I've definitely had some people, even on my podcast, I'll ask them anxiety questions and they'll say, I'm not really a very anxious person. Because they're thinking that anxiety is just worry and fear. But anxiety is actually any response that you do next when you're not getting what you think you need in any given moment. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if I walk into a hospital room, uh, well, let's take it more modern. If I'm walking into an elders meeting and I know it's going to be tense, 
I'll actually start to preempt the meeting in my head. I'll actually play out all the scenarios in my head to try to get ahead of what might happen in the meeting. That's just because I'm not getting what I think I need. And what I think I need is to know what's going to happen. But that's actually not true at all. I, I can actually successfully go into an elders meeting, not know what's going to happen, literally walk by faith and be okay. Even if the meeting doesn't go well, I can still be okay. So anxiety then becomes like an early warning system that I'm depending on something other than God for my well-being. And then it just becomes an opportunity to name it, notice it, move through it. And that process, I think, is really difficult, really hard to do. When you're walking into an elders meeting that you're anxious about, now this is obviously hard for me to relate to because I've never been anxious walking into an elders right. meeting. I guess you just need right. my elders. But Right. Who among us? Who among us has? Yeah, I... It must only be you because it's not me, clearly. Right, right. But you walk in there, you have this anxiety that you need to know what's going to happen. What is the process for you to go, okay, this is what I'm doing. How do you actually name it? What is your thought process going forward? Yeah, so there's a couple of sources. There's about 24 sources of anxiety that every one of us face, even though you are the exception, Luke, for the most <laughs> of us, the, the, for the lesser human, for the for one who's not as fine a specimen <laughs> as yourself. Uh, there's about 24 sources of anxiety. About 12 of them are internal and about 12 of them are relational. On top of those, we all have unique triggers based on a number of complex situations, our childhood, pain, things that we crave. So, for example, one of my unique triggers is the need to look intelligent. And it's related to that I always felt stupid as a kid. Just my whole life, my whole childhood, I always thought I was a, a dumb kid. And so I've overcompensated over the years. You, know, you used to see my library. It's just <laughs> massive because I, I just went on a learning bender for about mm -hmm. 20 years. Um, and so that trigger, even though I'm aware of it, it's still at play every time I'm in a meeting. So if somebody, if an elder asks me a question, it may not be that there's tension between me and the elder. My anxiety might be that I'm, I don't have the answer right ready. And when I don't have the answer ready to go, I feel stupid. Now, knowing that about myself is about 50% of the battle in overcoming it. Once you know a trigger and you can name it, you actually flip the power dynamic. And it goes from having you in its grip and now you're actually able to have it in your grip. So I've been doing this work a long time. I'm pretty hyper aware of my triggers and I, I also think the other breakthrough is I think too many people are way too tolerant and patient with their anxiety. They're, they're not aware of how much they carry, and therefore they put up with it too much. Mm. But over the years, I become less and less patient with it. So it takes less and less anxiety for me to say, that's enough of that. I'm now going to intervene. And for me, it's usually stopping. It's usually anywhere from literally a minute like maybe if I'm walking into that elders meeting, I might just stop for one minute. Or if I have time, I might go walk a prayer labyrinth or something mm. like that. It's usually a centering practice that reminds me that God is God and I'm not, that it's not all on my shoulders. That And the most powerful, like simple tool that I found is, is uh, my, my theology of anxiety is that anxiety resides in the space where God also resides. So when you're anxious, it's very difficult to also be aware of God's presence. Mm -hmm. And that's what I learned as a chaplain. If I'm going to notice where God's at work, I have to overcome my anxiety to see where God's at work. So when I'm anxious, I believe the lie that it's all on my shoulders. And then I start to realize, wait a minute, it's not on my shoulders. God's with me. 
But where I really start to relax is when I realize, wait a minute, God is in that room where the elders meeting is. He's been at work before I got there. He's in the heart of every one of those good elders, those men and women that help lead with me. They're good people. And and so just that mindfulness helps me relax. Mm-hmm. And then there's a lot more sophisticated tools, which I'd be happy to go into. But for me, hugging my wife, uh, playing a g- acoustic guitar for 15 minutes, mm. going to the local Benedictine monastery for three days. I've got quite a sophisticated list of things that take anywhere from one minute to a week. And, you, and they cost any. But, and you have these in your head, like these are, these are moves that you can go to in case anxiety mm-hmm. over, like, becomes overwhelming. I'm going to go to one of these options. I'm going to deal with my anxiety that way so I can be present in this meeting. Yeah, I have a, I call it a life-giving list. It's people, places, and activities that give me life. By the way, it was a wonderful moment. I had Richard Beck on my podcast, and he told me off for the list. I loved it. He what? And he's, he told me off. I asked him, where's a life-giving place that he loves to go? And it was a, such a fun moment for me because he told me off and then he kind of felt bad. He's like, oh, I hate that question because I could be <laughs> standing in the supermarket in Abilene, Texas, <laughs> and God's with me. You know, because yeah. he's kind of a mystic that wants to see God everywhere. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's called a life-giving list. People, places, and activities that, that give you life that are a gift from God. For a pastor or any person in, in the caring vocations – we all tend to be conduits of God's gifts. We, I think we all have the problem where we take the gifts of God and then we, we steward them for others. And so this list is exclusively for me. Mm-hmm. So my wife and hugging my wife is a gift from God for me. You know, it's not something I can it, twist. It'd be creepy if that was on my list too, giving your wife a hug. My wife a hug. Yeah, that'd be kind of weird. I, I feel like that'd be crossing a few lines. Yeah, I just... And, and yet I'm torn right now because she gives really good hugs. So who am I to hoard but that gift? that was my point is that they should be specific for you and yeah. everyone has to figure... <laughs> figure out your own list. Yeah. It's, yeah. It is true. You know, most of us tend to be so other-centered that we don't... We're just not naturally good at taking care of ourselves, or at least I'm not good at believing I need to be cared for. I'm, I, I'm, I, you know, I tend to believe others need to be cared for. And so, yeah, the list is mental and it's also written. I've actually got it. It's, it's on my website and people yeah. can download it. That's all. Yeah. And it seems like that's one of the struggles of leadership is that many people think if I'm a leader, that means I'm just taking care of other people and I'm not going to put the proverbial oxygen mask upon myself at any point because I'm just going to take yeah. care of someone else. So um, Richard Beck, our, our good friend, I'm glad that he told you off because when yeah. I was on your podcast, I felt like you told me off about something. I was trying to ask a follow-up question. You said oh, something yes. interesting and you're like, no, I'm not going to answer that question. We're going to talk about you. And I thought, Fine, I'm just going to hold on that question, and one day there's going to be time <laughs> that I get to ask this question, and you have to answer it. So you know what today is? The day that has to happen. It's, it's D Day. It is. All right. You went on, now. You you did mention this in your book, so it's it's not like completely out of left field. Uh, you talked about the three different centers that people's anxiety comes from, which, yeah. as uh, a student of the Enneagram, it sounds very similar to the like the three energy centers of you know the gut, the head, or the heart. Um, yeah. But you talk about anxiety coming from from three places, uh, coming from uh, um, manifesting in three okay, places. Okay, manifesting. T- tell me, yep. why the word manifest instead of. I don't think I don't know that anxiety is generated in the brain, the heart, and the gut. I just know that that's where you can first notice it. Okay, yeah. so I, I would say anxiety, leadership anxiety, is generated by when we don't get what we think we need in any given moment. Okay. 
Yeah, and this, by the way, is not the the heart, mind, and gut. I think is original with me, but the difference between chronic anxiety and acute anxiety is family systems theory. Mm-hmm. So, if if you indulge me, because I'm not ditching your question, even though this is the second me. time yeah. you're trying to run away from the question. Okay, yeah, we're coming uh, back to it. Yeah. So, go on, family systems. Yeah, yeah. I think this is important. Like um, uh, Murray Bowen says, there's acute anxiety. It's temporary. And it's physiological. So, like, let's say you're driving down the interstate. Someone in front of you breaks hard. You think you're going to get into a wreck. You have a uh, your heart palpitates, but you can pull over. You can get rest, and and the the situation has gone away. That's what makes it temporary. Chronic anxiety is this low level, ever present weight that we all carry. And what what Bowen did in the 1950s is he said your body doesn't know the difference. That's what's genius about this is your body doesn't understand when it's under threat that's real and when it's under threat that's not real. And all I'm trying to do in my, my silly little book is help us understand that most of the things that make us anxious aren't actually real threats. Yeah. And that's how we can experience freedom when we know what threatens us. Like for me, feeling stupid or needing to have the last word or needing to be liked. These are all threats in my life. But actually, that's not true. It's not nearly the threat like when my child's playing out on the road or an actual real danger. So to get back to your question, because I'm a courteous guest, (laughs) um, is, yeah, that that it manifests in a spinning mind, worry, a racing heart, which is adrenal, or a tightening gut, which is like a nauseous response. Mm -hmm. And, And if you can first begin to notice where it starts, that means you can first intervene. Do you think the type of anxiety or the um, or the precipitating incident affects where that goes to, or is that more just your disposition disposition as a person? It's a great question. I think it's disposition. And here's what I'd now like to turn the tables on you: is I am familiar with the Enneagram, but I wouldn't say I'm an expert on it. My understanding is like I'm an Enneagram three, which my understanding is the heart center. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but my anxiety almost exclusively resides in my head. Mm-hmm. So how would you make sense of that as an Enneagram guy? Well, I'm going to return the favor and say, uh, this is about you, not about me. So if you want me to answer your question, <laughs> you have to invite me back on your podcast, and then I will. Nice. But Very good. I'm not going to do that because I decide I'm going to be more mature. So there's something, oh, there's something about the Enneagram 3 that they reside in the heart center. So that's the 2, the 3, and the 4. The 2 is the helper, uh, the 4 is the romantic, the 3 is the achiever. Which as yep. someone talked about, I want to be liked, I want to be seen as smart, like that's that's three classic three yeah Yeah. i mean in a sense that many threes have that sort of language that they talk about not not diminishing what you're saying um but suzanne and she could tell you suzanne stabile who one of my enneagram gurus she she talks about how how threes you are in the feeling center the heart center but your feelings are all based on this is what you want me to be and so i'm thinking i step into the room in the chameleon thing, and I, I assess yes. what color I need to be, and so I yeah. flip to that. And so you are in the feeling center, but she would actually say that you are feeling repressed because all you're feeling is what other people want you to be. Now, yeah, now I, that sounds I right. feel bad for quoting her, but I think that is why maybe your anxiety would re- reside in your head because so much of what you're doing is I'm having to recalibrate who I am based onto the room I'm in. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, okay. Yeah, but I would say my anxiety typically is in my head. It's it's the racing head. That's that's me. That's where I find myself going. Um, 
uh, oh yeah, I can't move on because this is happening. I got to think about it. I got to like, because I'm going through, how can I spin and make this a positive? How can I reframe the negative? How can I get away from the fear that, that is, that, that's stuck there? Because anyway. Uh, no, that's right. Yeah. So I, you and I both believe the lie that thinking harder about something will lead us to peace. Wait, that's a lie? That's a, that's a hell-driven lie. No! <laughs> that is a lie from the pit of hell. And so uh, a couple of devices that anyone can use like today is anytime you notice yourself applying one of two solutions to your problem, you, that's making the problem worse. So the first solution is try harder. Anytime something's not working and your next solution is try harder. <laughs> so for example, if you have a staff member that's not producing and you've tried meeting with them and giving them your insight, and that's not working. And then your next move is more meetings and more insight. You're just making the problem worse. The second is more of the same. Mm-hmm. Whatever's not working now, just do more of that. And, and, and so that's often what happens. So that's why you can notice anxiety where it starts. And, and your little trigger for it is, oh, man, I'm using more of the same and try harder. You can start to intervene. On the wrap-up show this month, I will tell you why I think trying harder and more of the same actually is a good solution, because I've done it for 37 years. It's a disastrous solution. You should stop today. Yeah, I've never actually studied family systems, and so maybe that's why I continue to do this. But one of the things that was eye-opening in your book is that you talked about often we try more of the same, and what we end up getting is, therefore, more of the same. Because Well, actually, it's worse. Yeah, we actually make the problem, we actually deepen the, the entrenchment of the problem. Mm-hmm. And so, it's not just that we get more of the same, we actually make it go even worse. Yeah. And so what you're saying is often we think that the problem is, your language was content, on the content level. So if I give you more content, yeah. now, as someone who also has a you know, respectable library of books, who, who does yeah. a lot of content-driven stuff, you know, we're going to write, or we're going to preach, or we're going to say this, I, I often think content is a solution. But you say that's first-level change, or I don't know the language, first-level. Yeah. First order. First order. First order change. But you yep. say, we've got to go up to the second order. Second order. It sounds very Star Trek. It sounds like such next-level conversation. But yeah, it's known as second-order change. And this is from family systems. Is that what the language yeah, comes from? It's from family systems theory. I, I've learned, because I was exposed to this in grad school, in seminary, so I, this was uh, 1990s, but I started to discover as I've gotten more involved in family systems th- circles with my book coming out, a lot of systems theorists that I highly respect have never heard of this part of systems theory. blows my mind. Mm-hmm. So this is like systems 2.0 or 3.0. Okay. Systems theory started in the 50s and 60s, and then these guys came along in the early 80s, and they they created second-order change. And to me, it's truly a game-changing tool. And so what it looks like is I'm having conflict with person X, and so I'm trying to get person X to think the same way I should think, and person X is trying to get me to think the same way they do, and so we're just going back and forth. You should think this, and no, 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 I should think this. But you say that's content level. Let's go to the other level, which is what? Yeah, process level. So you spend as much time with what you're saying and what he is saying, and you add to that the way you're relating, the dynamic between you. And you actually, what, what your goal is, is to be able to map out the dynamic the way you'd map out a game of chess. Uh, you can act like, it's almost like you try to turn your relationship with this person into a football play, if that's a helpful Thank metaphor. Thank you for making that American for me. Well, it's Texas. I, I respect smart. that you're from yeah, Texas. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Fr- Friday Night Lights. <laughs> uh, what a, uh, yeah, that's it. Clear minds, for what, full hearts. Can't lose. Can't lose. What a show. I referenced that on Easter Sunday because it's the best. 
What a show. Yeah. Good. Be- best marriage on television, by the 100% way. 100% agree. About. Coach Taylor, yes. Best marriage. Yeah. And- I have said that in a sermon before. Best marriage on TV. And Mrs. Coach. You know, it's interesting. I read an interview because I noted out about these guys. And they, the, the actors told the writer, they said, hey, you can, make, you can throw anything at our marriage in the show you want. Just always make us fighting for each other, not against each other. Oh, Wasn't that something? That's so good. Yeah, and you start looking at the things they navigated, but they were still always moving toward each other. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so first order change would be somebody doesn't understand you. That's the problem. So you use more words to try to get them to understand you. That's first order change. That's more of the same. That's try harder. Second order change would be what does each of us want that we're not getting? And do we really need it? So you need to be understood, but you'll actually have a breakthrough with this person if you die to your need to be understood and you simply seek to understand this person. This is uh, a tough concept on an audio, like on a podcast, because it helps to see it in writing where it's actually listed out beat by beat. So because, maybe people should like go buy your book. Is that what you're saying? You know, that'd be a good idea, yeah, to go buy the book. Or Actually, it's funny, on my website, I actually have a video where you can actually watch me on a flip chart move through this. Um, But um, what I just did then in this, instead of needing to be understood, seeking to understand, that would be one of the three techniques to break the pattern, which is known as a reversal. So instead of needing to be understood, I'm going to reverse it. Now I need to understand. And you will dissolve the tension in one meeting if you do that. Yeah. I've looked back on conflict that I've been in and conflict that's been solved. And I didn't have the language and I didn't know uh, the, the chess move that was being made. But in hindsight, I can see that's what happened. We moved from content to the dynamic, to the process. We, we changed, we, we dare I say, we flipped the script and all of a sudden we had progress. Cause, cause actually, you probably have intimacy. You actually probably exponentially improved your relationship. Yeah, that sounds right. It sounds weird to say as well, but it sounds... It sounds right. Intimacy. Yeah. I know it's a bit of an uncomfortable <laughs> word, but that is what happened is you, you and this other person had a genuine human moment. And that's what intimacy, I think, really just is. Yeah. yeah. It still makes me uncomfortable. But uh, yeah, you can, you can still go gut a deer and be intimate with another <laughs> man. Like both, both are possible. That's the good news. There's so much good news in this. Thank you for, yeah, for leaning into the Texas stereotypes, which I'm not saying aren't right. I'm just saying I appreciate you, you, you recognizing them. You know, what's interesting is I've been teaching this for years. I do a class on this at my church. I've also taught this, to, like I've gone to high schools and taught this to high school kids and also in like developing countries. Everybody gets this. Like what I love about this approach and systems theory, all I'm doing is giving you a language and tools for stuff you already know. I don't think I've taught you hardly anything new today. You, you just, you've had all these experiences and I'm just giving you a framework to make sense of them. And, hmm. and I think the other thing I'm offering is I, I try to teach very early that self-awareness is so massively overrated. Like if hmm. you're only self-aware, you'll, you won't experience any transformation. So self-awareness is not the destination. It's just the gate you walk through. It's the appetizer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's this whole difficult work of actually training yourself to think differently. So, so if I'm aware that I need to be the smartest person in the room, that's not helpful. What becomes helpful is learning to notice it and then intervene. And then I actually experience 
a depth of the gospel that I didn't experience before. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that's the the difference of the Enneagram being a fun party trick where you, oh, I can guess what number you are, this is what number I am, to actual spiritual formation, to move past your false self, to figure out this is who I actually am, and this is who God can create me into being again. Like, this is what what my path is going to look like. So, yeah, yeah I appreciate that. Sure. And, uh, and I like the idea that you're... In some ways, you are helping giving some new tools, but in some ways, you are giving language to tools that people have kind of acquired over the years. Because you've, people have been doing the work that you're describing without the language, without without the you know the, the names on the tools. But to some degree, you're using that. That makes sense. One of the things that was uh, newer to me, a concept that I'm still trying to make sense of, is the idea of childhood vows. Mm. Oh, yeah. And so you say that a childhood vow is a promise you make to yourself as a child, either consciously or un- subconsciously, that informs the way you see and operate in the world. Now, if someone's never heard yeah. of that term, give us a, a childhood vow. Yeah, give us an idea of what one is. Yep. A childhood vow is an agreement you make with yourself as a kid to either avoid pain or seek pleasure. Okay. It's usually to avoid pain, but sometimes it's also to chase pleasure. Sometimes you made a childhood vow consciously. So let's say you're eight. Let's say your parents got divorced. You may have consciously said to yourself, when I'm an adult, I'm going to get married and I will never divorce. And so one of the signs of a childhood vow is the use of superlative when you're saying never or always or any kind of a exaggerated language. Okay where one incident in your life now has a grip on your whole view of life. Uh, Now, some childhood vows are unconscious, and you don't actually uncover them until you're an adult. And those are the harder ones to figure out. Hmm. And that would be, uh, it's it's still that same language, is, is you're making meaning of the way life must be for you to be okay. And what you're doing is you're taking one incident or one experience Maybe it's in your family, but you're, you're now projecting that onto the whole world and you're seeing the world through it. So what a childhood vow does is it takes your past and it keeps it in the present and it then infects your future. Hmm. So a friend of mine named Jim Harrington, he's, I think, the best that I know that teaches on childhood vows, and I reference him quite a bit in the book. Uh, he, he would say um, that a childhood vow, it's like, childhood clothing like it, it fit you well as a kid but you grow out of it it starts to strangle you and when whenever you're under pressure and and jim actually i'm i'm, I'm just being sensitive for a moment because i'm sharing jim's story but he's been public about this he talked about as a young pastor he found himself for a variety of reasons avoiding or being repulsed by tall deep-voiced men so if if he was on staff at a church and this big deep voice guy would come in, Jim would either decide to hate him or, or Jim would like record into a corner act like again. He'd be all kind of uncomfortable and stammering around this guy. And it took him a while to figure out that there was an experience as a kid that had formed that view. So for some people from trauma, childhood vows are deeply seated. For the rest of us, like I, I'm not a child of trauma, uh, but I've had some pain. For the rest of us, it's just that we make meaning out of our pain and we make agreements to say, I'm never going to feel that way again. Um, and then we live out of those agreements instead of living by faith. Hmm. I don't know if that's helpful or not. Yeah, so would you, and you, you, you mentioned the book, you said a few times in the podcast, but you talk about you're feeling 
the need to make sure that you don't feel unintelligent or that people... There you go. It, is, yeah. Would that be tied to a childhood vow? Something yeah. like that? Yeah. 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 So I had an older sister who was always brilliant. She got incredible grades. I was a very average academic. I Most of my intelligence comes from emotional intelligence, which back in the 70s and 80s, no one talked about. Mm-hmm. So all through elementary and high school, all of the classes are very much academic-based. So I didn't start to feel smart until I was uh, out of high school. I was a really late bloomer. So I spent probably every bit of 10 years compensating for this awful feeling of feeling stupid. I was also um, the youngest in my class. So I graduated at 16, and then I turned 17 two or three weeks after we graduated. So all of my friends, and when you're younger, this really matters with sports teams and stuff. I get it. So, so I love sports. I, I, I was obsessed with cricket. I played cricket for hours in the backyard, and I knew I was an amazing cricket player. And then I joined a cricket team, and I'm 12 months, de- de- 12 months developmentally younger than everyone else on the team. And I'm the worst on the team. And that disparity between thinking I was amazing in my backyard and discovering I'm actually the worst put me into shame. And so a ch- then that's when you start to make a childhood vow. I'm never going to be exposed as a, as a you know, idiot in public again. Hmm. And then you start, instead of just leading freely and instead of walking into a room and seeing what people really need, you start to live out of that need. Yeah. And so you start to subtly and not so subtly try to show people how smart you are and, and stuff like that. And it's, it's a pretty big deal. And I, and I think many of us, when we make something that's not about us, clearly about us, what we're doing is we're, we're, we're working out those scripts that we've already have entrenched inside of us. That I've got to get this need met. I've got to get this, this box checked. When I was a chaplain, I'll never forget. So the whole CPE experience, you go do your chaplaincy and then every morning for an hour and a half, we're in a group where we're basically doing group therapy. And we're doing some of the tools that I wrote about in the book. We're doing genograms and verbatims. At one point, the chaplain supervisor nicknamed me the super chaplain. And I took that as a compliment, and he was mocking me. I thought, I really am the super chaplain. Out of of all these chaplain residents, not only am I the youngest, but I'm the best, you know, Enneagram 3. (laughs) And everyone laughed. And, and Peter said to me, it was really a profound, it really hurt, and then it was really freeing. And that's usually how you know it's a vow. It really hurts, and then it's really freeing. And Peter said, Steve, you have all these gifts and talents. You're, you're one of these amazingly gifted and talented guys. Like, you can kind of do anything. You pick things up quickly. But you work so hard to show us how gifted and talented you are. That's the problem. If you just relax, people will see it. But you work so hard to to make sure you're managing your image, and that was that was the super chaplain uh, label. Is I kind of fly into every situation, save the day, and he's like, "We, we can see through you. You're, you're covering. You know, you're anxious, yeah. basically." Um, yeah, that uh, that's a helpful piece of advice for all of us to hear that we're all working on our own scripts and trying to make it about us, and it's not. And uh, okay, so Steve, the book. Managing Leadership Anxiety. I'm, I'm not a, I don't do a ton of leadership books on the podcast. I can probably count on one hand books that are leadership books that I've done. Yeah. And I found this one to be one that I was, I really enjoyed because I felt like you were giving us, I know you're saying that we're giving language to, to things you already knew, but I, 
I think you're coming at it from a different angle. It wasn't, you know, just set a vision and, and tell people who they could be. But right. I, I like the integration right. of family systems. I'm not uh, um, much of a student on that. I don't know much about it, but I found it to be a really compelling take. And I felt it to be like, it, it was very eye-opening to things that I find myself in the middle of and going, this is actually a resource that I can draw upon. So, uh, well done. I, and I feel like I've told you this a few times. I really enjoyed the book. So, thank you. Good. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me on the show. And I, I will confess, and I, I'm not sure the wisdom of confessing this, but, you know, I'm a rookie author. No one knows me. I've got a neat idea, mm-hmm. right? That's how I got published. Kind of old school publishing when the idea drove the book. Yeah. And uh, the only opportunity I had to publish was with a really great organization that's a leadership organization. And I love this organization. That's why it's a leadership book. But the truth is, it's really a human flourishing book, right? <laughs> like, it's, it's, I really intentionally wrote it. Like, if you want to experience deeper freedom, if you're sick of getting in your own way all the time, and if certain people drive you crazy again and again, I think I've got a set of tools to help you. Mm. But because Leadership Network was so kind to come and help me publish, it's a leadership book. That's pretty funny. Uh, if, if you don't know anything yeah. about the publishing industry, the idea of a content-driven uh, book proposal is is definitely a novel idea so uh good for you well, i i owe leadership network they they really stuck their neck out and that's you know that's why i've so, i've so far sold dozens <laughs> of copies of the book so <laughs> uh such as publishing Spe- speaking yeah. of things that are good for your soul uh look at how many books you yeah. sell and who sells a lot who sells a little that stuff is um it's that's actually cancer so don't do that um i agree yeah well steve it's been a pleasure thanks for coming on the podcast yeah, thanks I appreciate that. you thanks trying to for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>